Steve Ritchie, on Georgian Bay Roots, we share the music made and played in Gray and Bruce counties, and you've been doing that for a long time. Yeah, not so much these days, but uh, but yeah, I grew up here and moved away in 81 and lived in Toronto for eight or nine years and then moved to Peterborough and lived there for eight or nine years. And joined a band? That's where I joined Tanglefoot and then moved back here in 96. When did I, music become a part of your life? Oh, it probably never wasn't. You know, it was a musical family and mom was... Uh, um, a music teacher and a, and a, a vocal teacher. She taught in the, in the um, Bruce County school system, but she was also a private vocal teacher. She didn't teach any of us, but, um, but you know, choir formally director and all informally? that. She didn't teach you formally or there was still the, like No, nothing, nothing formally. Yeah, yeah. There, there was certainly instruction when we were, <laughs> whether we wanted it or not, you know, like we, you know, we were always singing in church choirs or, you know, putting things together for, Oh, just various things. I remember we we sang in the Kiwanis Festival as a family a few times. So, you know, mom was certainly at the helm of that. But dad was also, dad was an excellent, excellent singer. My dad had a terrific, big, warm, baritone voice. He was an excellent singer. And so he and mom were in choirs together all the time, like George and Bay. Mom was one of the co-founders of the Wyarton Community Choir back in 67. And, uh, and dad sang in the choir and she directed it up until whenever she quit. That was in the nineties, I think at some point. Um, uh, but also sang together in the Georgian Bay choir and, uh, the church choir at St. John's United in Wyarton. And then, you know, the church at Clavering United church. And they were in, oh, some musicals and some Gilbert and Sullivan stuff back in the day. And so, yeah, music was just kind of always around. So so it, it was part of the education, too. You were expected to take, like, we all had to take piano lessons until we got our, like, grade 8 conservatory. And then we didn't have to do it anymore. But it was just considered part of your education, like going to school. And for you, when you moved out of out of Grey Bruce and, and down to the city, was music going to be your career at that point? Or did that come later? I Well, it, it ended up being... Um, I always wanted it to be. I mean, growing up, I wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to play drums in Max Webster. And uh, and playing drums is what I did. Um, I was a, you know, I was all the bands I played in up until when I left home, I was the drummer. And, uh, and I had my sort of local drumming heroes, guys like Mike Malone and Tom Walters and people who were really good drummers locally, the ones I knew. Um, so that's what I wanted to do. That's not particularly why I moved away. Ostensibly, I moved away to go to, go to university, which I never really did. But I played in a, I su supported myself when I got to Toronto by playing in a bar band six days a week, and uh, the, we just played like blood barns, you know, just these awful places. But you played all the time, so you know you got your chops together. And um, but I also around that same time started uh, working in a recording studio in Toronto called Zaza Sound Productions, where I uh, learned engineering, uh, recording engineering. Back then, of course, it's all tape. So, um, uh, so I did those two things at the same time. And then uh, in 88, I was asked if I wanted to join Tanglefoot, which was, uh, I, I had, and I hadn't played any music for a couple of years at that point. Because I got out of the bar band thing. I was just sick of it. And, you know, I was going to get lung cancer and die from just secondhand smoke in those days, right? And um, 
And that was a whole different kettle of fish because that was traditional sort of music. I was always a rocker. And so that kind of enlarged the boundaries a little bit. It was a band I knew because my the one of the founders of that band, Tanglefoot, was a guy named Joe Grant who was married to my cousin. And I'd known Joe since I was a little kid. And it was a band I knew of, and I'd seen them play a couple times when they played around here or around Toronto. So, so it was a whole different thing for me to play that kind of music, acoustic string based string band type music, you know? And then that was a whole different career change and a whole kind of sea change in life. And I played, I started with Tanglefoot in 88 and played with them till 2009 when we packed up over here at the Roxy. And you were, you were the longest serving member of that band. Yeah. By the time we quit, there was nobody left from the original band. I replaced one of the original guys. Joe Grant was the last of the original three. It was a trio for a long time. And he stayed till 2003, I believe. And then he just got kind of just worn out from the road and everything and just wanted to kind of scale his life back, I think. Um so yeah, it was this weird thing where by 2009 we became, I used to joke we had become our own tribute band because there was like I said nobody left from the original 3. But for the finale here at the Roxy, we had two of the three originals who came and took part in the concert. So that was really cool. And also previously that fall, we played in Peterborough for the first time in some time in the fall of 2009. It would have been I think it was October. And we played a show uh, uh, at a church hall in Peterborough, a lot of people there. And the other one of the original members, Tim Rowett, he came and played in that show. Would so there still have been cool. songs from those original days that were part of the set list? Probably not from the days when it was the original three guys. No, no. There were certainly, there were certainly still a, a couple of songs in the set list that came along shortly after I joined. Um... But nothing I don't nothing I can recall from way back then. Well, I, I'd have to it's it's possible you could catch me up on that, but but not off the top of my head, I don't think so. And certainly you contributed songs to the Tanglefoot catalog. Had you been writing songs before you joined them? Yeah, occasionally. Um uh I, I was never a prolific songwriter, never have been. And um most of the songs that have my name, most of the Tanglefoot songs that have my name on them, uh, maybe with one exception, have somebody else, or maybe two exceptions, have somebody else's name on them too, because the idea for the song didn't originate with me, but I kind of came in as a collaborator afterwards. That was actually a pretty common way that Joe Grant and I worked. Joe loved to collaborate. He loved to get a, a half-baked idea and then push it across the table and say, hey, you know, what do you think this should sound like? Or what would, what would you do with this? He loved that kind of thing. Whereas um, like other, I'm not so much like that. And, and my brother, Rob, he was in the band for a long time. He's not so much like that. He wants to give you an idea that's that in him, his mind is, is pretty much finished. Now that's doesn't mean he wouldn't, you know, that there wasn't still, there was still like workshopping to do. And well, why have you thought of this? And why don't you try this? There was always that process. Uh, but Joel liked to give you a half-baked idea, which was really interesting. And, and it was a, a fun way to work. And sometimes the songs ended up very different uh, in, in, in several aspects from 
from how they were originally pitched, you know. Can you give us an example of a track like that? I, yeah, one example that off the top of my head is a song called One More Night, which was a song that Tanglefoot played just about every night from 19, every night probably for 11 years from, it was on the, it was on the Full Throated Abandon album that came out in 99. Am I right? Yeah, it came out in 99 and we played that sh- song probably every single show until 2009. I know it's the first song we played at the Roxy for those finale shows. It was the first song in a set list because it was a big, fat, Tanglefoot song with lots, lots of dynamics in it and lots of big vocals and lots of, you know, aggressiveness and a big sweeping story and the whole bit, you know. But it was, um, when, I remember when Joe first pitched it to me, it was very much a, a, a much slower, laid back, contemplative kind of song. And, and he played it for me and I kind of thought, hmm, like really cool story. And uh, the, the reason I'm mentioning this song is because I specifically remember I had heard a Tim Harrison song. You know Tim Harrison, mm-hmm. Owen Sound songwriter, one of the founders of Summerfolk. I had heard a Tim Harrison song uh, a year or two before and it was on a CD in my car. It doesn't so- sound like One More Night, but it had a particular kind of lilt to it that was very brisk and very quick. And I always thought it'd be cool to have a song that had that kind of rhythm to it. So when Joe played me this song, it suddenly occurred to me, what if you just sped it up a lot? What if you just played the same song he just played me, only a lot faster? And that's what we did. I played it back for him and it took him a little bit to get used to it. But uh, he, he, as my recollection is anyway, without much persuading really at all, he kind of went, oh yeah, yeah, that's really cool. So... So, there's one example, anyway. In the fall of 1883, I had just one more load of coal for the Cornish Jacks and the Silver Island Mine. Beneath the icy waves, they picked and hacked at the Silver Caves. And the coal fires kept them dry And I never once did think That just a couple drinks Could cause that mine to die For seventeen good years I've been a faithful captain here I've always had an eye for the weather And it's an easy thing to say for someone to blame Well, the captain should have known better And everyone still thinks That the captain's love a drink Is why that silver mine died And I could hear the voice of Jim Whisper in my ear Or maybe it was Sally saying Who's the captain here? The title is your ship You surely have the right to set the time of sail and to stay here where it's warm one more night. The captain of my ship and the 
master of my pride. Still there's an undertow in every sailor's mind. And the blue of Sally's eyes and the warmth of her thighs spoke to me in terms that could not be denied. I turned my back on the lake, thinking she would wait. Give me a little more time. With gin and love half-crazed, we'd lain there for three days when I staggered to the window to catch a breath of air. I remember Sally laughed as an icy winter blast caught me in the face and snapped back my hair. And one thought filled my head as I fell back on the bed. That silver mine's gonna die. And I could hear the voice of gin Whisper in my ear, or maybe it was Sally saying, Who's the captain here? The tunnel is your ship. You surely have the right to set the tide of sail and to stay here where it's warm one more night. She was caught. No way to get the lake to change her stubborn mind. There was no way to entice that wretched winter ice to leave a channel open to the Silver Island mine. And with no coal to fire the pumps in November all at once, the lake gets around that mine. In the fall of 1883, just one more load of coal would have saved the Silver Island mine. I know that I'm to blame and I must bear the shame But try to understand the nature of my crime I was unfaithful to the lake She raged at my mistake She wanted that mind to die And I could hear the voice of Jim Whisper in my ear Maybe it was Sally saying Who's the captain here? The tunnel is your ship And you surely have the right and the time I say, I hear the voice of Jim whisper in my ear. Maybe it was Sally saying, Who's the captain here? The tunnel is your ship. You surely have the right to set the time of sail. And I could hear the voice of Jim whisper in my ear. Or maybe it was Sally saying, Who's the captain here? The tunnel is your ship. You surely have the right. You and I shared a, a co-bill at the downtown bookstore in probably 2009 or 2010, I think. Uh, and I heard you describe your songs in that show as being the ones with the high death count. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Like I didn't write a ton of tunes, but the, the very first song I wrote for Tanglefoot um, that was just me was a song called Immigrant's Tears. And, and yeah, it's, it's this, 
it's it's uh and, and oddly enough the germ for the song the idea for the song came from an episode of uh, uh a letter to wingfield farm which was actually quite a funny play but there's this little tragic moment in it where a guy tells a story about coming over from ireland after his bride died and that gave me this idea for a song about a guy in the old country in the old pioneer days, right? Who, you know, there's no money over there and the landlords own all the land. So, you know, there's like really cheap land in Canada. So he, he tells his bride, he's just gotten married and he tells her, I'm going over, I'm going to build us a farm and then I'm coming to get you. So he does. He spends two years clearing the land over here in what's now Ontario. Then he gets a letter that his wife died like two weeks after he shipped. So she's been dead for almost two years, but the letters telling him that never made it. So that was my idea of a, of a kind of, I've, I've always liked drama and irony, you know? So that was my idea for a song with this kind of dreadful, tragic irony. So that was the first song I ever wrote for Tanglefoot. And then, and then probably the best known song I ever wrote was Vimy. And uh, in that song, you know, like, you know, I don't know how many thousands, thousands of people die in that song. <laughs> it's about the battle of Vimy Ridge, right? And you got to play that song at Vimy Ridge. Uh, yeah, we did. It was a peculiar day. You were there. Uh, but uh, by the time we played, you were gone. <laughs> because the way the program ended up, just before we played, they announced, uh, well, the buses are leaving shortly, so go to the buses. And so 30,000 people vanished, and we sort of played for the television crews as they wrapped up their their cables. But yeah, yeah, we played it at Vimy. There's a, there's a YouTube video of us uh, in front of the Vimy, Vimy Monument singing that song. As a matter of fact, I happened to I was with somebody somewhere in the last week or two who who was uh, playing that, and I was looking over their shoulder. So I hadn't thought of that in a while. But yeah, yeah, it's true. Raise your flask, aim your rifles high. I've had a dream, I've seen we three should have no fear at all. You'll die in Kenora, Billy, you Jim in Winnipeg. And I will end my days in Montreal. These people come to see me in my bedroom With faces dim and names I can't recall Some woman with a golden ring She comes to comb my hair And she dresses me and walks me down the hall I can still put one foot before the other If someone points the way for me to go Today the sun is shining And a crowd has gathered round They put circles of red flowers on stones Raise your flask Aim your rifles high I've had a dream I've seen we three should have no fear at all You'll die in Kenora, Billy You Jim in Winnipeg And I will end my days in Montreal Old Jim Rankin stood behind me in the tunnel Spat on his bayonet and wiped it with his hand And he rocked from heel to heel, blew out his cheeks and whistled While we waited for the signal to advance 
Jimmy Rankin, he was 20, and we thought him an old man. He said he'd father children by the score, by girls back in Winnipeg and girls in Calais. And he bragged, by God, there'd be a hundred more. Raise your flask, aim your rifles high. I've had a dream, I've seen we three should have no fear at all. You'll die in Kenora, Billy, you Jim in Winnipeg. And I will end my days in Montreal. And Billy Whitefish from Kenora, jet black hair and eyes like coal. We all call him chief behind his back. He never smiled or laughed or joked or spoke that much at all. Just sat and smoked while we waited to attack. Well, they poured shells over our heads into the hillside. In 30 yards, our kit and boots were full of mud. But as we made the ridge, Jimmy went down on both knees. And he coughed into his sleeve, and there was blood. Raise your flask, aim your rifles high. I've had a dream, I've seen we three should have no fear at all. You'll die in Kenora, Billy, you Jim in Winnipeg. And I will end my days in Montreal. The last sound I ever heard was an explosion And bodies flew like apples thrown by boys at play When I could see again, I was alone Jimmy wasn't there And a crater marked the hillside where he'd lain And Billy Whitefish from Kenora Wound up in a German trench Where he captured their machine gun all alone And held them off until his ammunition was all spent and they swarmed around, and they hacked him to the bone. Raise your flask, aim your rifles high. I've had a dream, I've seen we three should have no fear at all. You'll die in Kenora, Billy, you Jim in Winnipeg. And I will end my days in Montreal. Now every day I still remember what I told them My two friends who that day from this earth were torn And the craters and the trenches where they died now bear the names Of the cities and the towns where they were born Raise your flask Aim your rifles high I've had a dream I've seen we three Should have no fear at all You'll die in Kenora, Billy You Jim in Winnipeg And 
and I will end my days in Montreal. You toured in the States, you toured across Canada, you toured in the UK. Yeah. Are there particularly memorable touring moments from your time with that band or with RPR, which is your current musical project, and who you will be performing with at Summerfolk this coming August? Yes, we will. It's going to be great. Um, um, and and especially wonderful for Beaker, our drummer, who has never played summer folk. You know, Al Parrish, Rob, my brother, and I, we've we've had that experience of playing summer folk. When was your first summer folk? 89, I think, with the trio. And I remember it fairly vividly. I wouldn't call it a a terribly memorable performance. Um, I didn't think I didn't think we did that well. And then, and then back again in '96, uh, I think it was Dawn Bird's first year. And by then, we had our we had migrated. Our our sound had changed, and uh, to so well not changed. Our sound had evolved the way it does. We were by then a uh, well by then a four or five piece band. It was that same year anyway that Rob, my brother Rob, joined. And I can't remember if it was before or after Summer Folk. So, uh, and then we played. Pretty regularly from from uh, sorry I said two thousand six I meant ninety six I think you said ninety six okay 90, yeah. from, from ninety six to two thousand and nine we were there um, every few years it, it, we had a really very very fortunate to get to do that um but uh, I've lost my train of thought so here I, well I I threw in a, a separate question there uh, I asked you about touring stories but, oh yeah and then I started talking about summer folk but let's maybe stay on summer folk for a minute I'm really interested to hear what Summerfolk has meant to you. Uh, maybe not your favorite performance in 89, but then you were back an, a number of times. And I think as part of that farewell tour, do I remember as well? Yeah, in, we were there that last that last year. That's probably the most memorable. I mean, to stand on that stage and get two standing O's. Mm. Yeah, with people that you had traveled with. Doesn't get any better. Yeah. And yeah. playing for your community. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, uh, lots of lots of memorable um, uh, touring stories. You know, good and bad and ridiculous. And you know, we always used to say when 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 you're on the road and anybody who's been on the road wouldn't like any, any if you do it long enough, anything you can imagine sooner or later will happen. You know, and. Um, the thing that made it all the the thing that made it ultimately even more rewarding than simply from an artistic point of view is that i mean in a band like that it, we had to, we we had a lot of turnover like every, you know every few years somebody had to move on or somebody had a kid and so needed some time away from the band or whatever so there was always a certain amount of uh, personnel turnover and we always brought people in first first of all it, what i mean you had to you had to have a certain like level of ability right you had to be able to sing for one thing to some extent you had to be able to sing harmonies and you had to have a sense for that and you had to be able to play but the the other thing was you had to kind of buy into what we were about like from a from um from a kind of thematic artistic point of view because there was always something vaguely historic vaguely folkloric about uh 
Tanglefoot specifically, you had to kind of, um, you had to kind of think that was cool, uh, in some sense. And I'm not, I'm not really, it's a difficult thing to articulate, but we, 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 we chose people as much for personality as we did for anything else. It had to be somebody that you want to spend time with. I mean, bands don't, you do, there, there are lots and lots of bands out there. If you look at the history of them who didn't, get along or didn't even particularly like each other. I remember Beaker, a drummer in RPR, he, he used to work at Toronto airport and he told me one time he was there when the Eagles flew in for a show. He said they all got off the plane and got in five, six separate limousines. They wouldn't even ride in the same car with each other to the hotel. Like they just couldn't stand each other, you know? Um, so it's not necessary to make great art that you like each other, but it sure is a lot more fun. And when you're going to be spending so much time together, like, you know, on the road and in hotels and in coffee shops and backstage and everything. If you, if you like each other's company and even when you like each other's company, there's still lots of stuff that comes up. There's still lots of irritations and lots of, you know, um, uh, little, you know, micro hostilities and, 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 you know, passive aggressive irritations that come up. I mean, it all still happens, but if you essentially like each other, it's all bearable. And, and ultimately you come down to, to, you know, the love between the people. So, um, give, give us an example of the, you said any, like you spend enough time on the road and you were on the road for like 20 years. Uh, you said everything happens. Can you give us a, yeah, I'll give you an, an example. amazing one. And, uh, I can't believe I survived it. Kind well, of here's story. a, can, here's an, I can't believe I survived it. Cause this is pretty vivid, even though it was quite some time ago, I'm thinking it was a, I'm thinking this is around 2005 and we were on our way. I think it was summertime and I, and we were going East, which makes me think we were probably going to Lewis, uh, to uh, Lunenburg to play the festival there. So we stopped in Riviere de Lou, Quebec. There's a motel there with a gas station and some restaurants. And we'd stopped there a couple of times before it just seemed to be, I think we left from Kingston or maybe Peterborough and drove that far and thought, okay, that's enough for one day. So we get the hotel or motel and we check in and the check-in is in the gas station, which sounds a little weird, but it was, like I said, we'd stayed there before. It was, a, it was not an unfamiliar place. So I go to my room, I unlock the door. This is about five in the afternoon and I unlock the door and I go in and in the room are about six 14 year old girls in various states of undress. I think they were like a softball team or a soccer team. And I walk in. Now, I saw a prison flash before my eyes. <laughs> I just yanked the door shut. And I ran back to the desk and I said, there are people in that room already. And that was the end of it. <laughs> like, <laughs> But uh, that's not the only time that happened. It happened two or three other times where you would check into a room and there's already somebody in there. But that was in my case, that was certainly the most spectacular and potentially uh, disastrous <laughs> thing that happened. So, uh, so yeah, that was, um, what's a, what's a high point? It's, it's hard to, th there were, you know, there were so many, um, I would say, uh, winning, we won best vocal group at the 2007 Canadian folk music awards. Um, when we found out we were nominated, we were pretty stunned. And, and that year, 
unusually, I think, for professional musicians. We actually had a little bit of money in the pot by the time we got to the end of the year. And I think the award ceremony is, I think it was like the beginning of December or something like that. And it was at, uh, it was in, uh, actually, it was in Gatineau across the river from, it was at the big, the Museum of Civilization. Mm -hmm. That's where the ceremony was. So we all said, well, we're nominated. Let's go, you know, rent the hotel rooms, do the whole thing. Let's treat ourselves. And we did. And, uh, and so it was really fun, you know, you had a big dinner and got to see all kinds of people that we knew that you don't usually see like lots of other musicians and, and people from our, we were on Borealis records. So all those folks were there and it was really, a lot of the people who run or ran Borealis are the folks who were instrumental in making the Canadian folk music awards a thing. Mm. Like Grit Laskin and Bill Garrett and and those folks and people listening might not even be familiar with the, the CFMAs, um, but they are they were created to highlight the incredible yeah. work being done by Canadian folk musicians yep. because there wasn't the same stage. At, like We know the Junos, and there, there's yeah. a lot of pomp and circumstance around that, mm-hmm. but there's not the same spotlight being shone on on folk. And yeah. so it's a big deal for the community. Yeah, and it was a it was certainly a big deal for us. And then uh, I believe it was Len Podolik who, uh, in his band, The Ducks, who were presenters for our category, and they read off all the names of, of, for the you know vocal group of the year for 2007, and then they announced we won, and I couldn't believe it. I uh, am you know going up on stage and accepting an award, and I have it at home. It says beautiful. I don't know if you've ever seen one. I'll I'll, no. I'll show it to you sometime. Actually, they put it on. They had it on display for about six months at the Roxy afterwards, um, and uh, it was really cool. Uh, to go up and accept an award, you know, it, that, that was, that was a highlight that was, uh, because Tanglefoot was, we were in a way, we were a little bit like the rush of Canadian folk music and that we didn't get very many good critical reviews, but people, more people came to our shows than to the people who did get good critical reviews, you know? So there was a bit of that. Uh, at times. And, and so I, I didn't expect anything like that. And I don't think any of us did. And it was, it was, uh, that was a wonderful highlight. Yeah. I'm thinking about you folks kind of taking the stage in, in a venue like that with so, so much community around you. And, and Steve, from all that I've seen, like community is such a big part of the way that you make music, whether you're, um, you're part of the band at a Purple Valley Stomp or, or, it's gotten more that way yeah. since I since I got off the road. Uh, it's it's funny how um, when I we packed in the end of two thousand nine. I'd lived here since ninety six, but I knew nothing about what went on in Own Sound. I was never here. You know, I could tell you I I could tell you the best place to get pizza in Duluth, Minnesota, and I could tell you a really great place to play in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. But I didn't know what was going on in Own Sound because, like I said, I wasn't. You know, we're based here, but, you know, we didn't play here. We didn't play in Owen Sound any more than we played in, I don't know, Coburg or, or you know, Halifax. Um, so the community aspect that you talk about, yeah, I'm very involved now. Uh, but I wasn't so much then just because, you know, it was a whole different thing. My whole focus was keeping this band on the road because I also I was also the manager and the booking agent. And so that was a consuming, a highly consuming thing, you know. Did you feel like there was community in the folk scene? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I I also imagine the nature of touring is that if 
Like if you're at playing your show, you're not at someone else's. And if you're all across the country and the continent and either side of the Atlantic, then you're going to cross paths with people at festivals and things like that. But I, I don't know that everyone understands how kind of lonely and, and tiring being on the road can also be. But it sounds like you did connect with folks. And, and Oh, yeah. Um, and being in a band helps. Like if you're a solo singer songwriter, because and, and I know people who have done both. They've done the solo singer songwriter thing and they've been in bands. It is way it's it's probably and I've not done it. I've only toured in a band way, way more difficult to tour on your own because there's no other support network. If you have an off day, there's nobody else to kind of sort of take up that little bit of slack for you. And in a band, it's so much easier, I think, that way. Um, but, well, here, here's an example of what you're talking about, community. The Wayland Jennies, right? I don't even know if they're around anymore. But I think they still are. Are they? I, although their membership has also changed over yeah. the years. Well, I used to, one of the things I used to do is look where they were playing and then I'd, I'd phone up those promoters. Like we got a really great gig at an arts center up in, way up in Northern Minnesota somewhere. I forget the name of the, Grand, Ra Grand Rapids. There's a Grand Rapids, Minnesota and a really great arts center there. They're called the Rife, Reef Center or the Rife Center. And the, and the Wayland Jennies had played there. And so I phoned the guy up and I said, hi, you yeah, see so you have the Wayland Jennies. We're not, we don't sound like them, obviously. We're a bunch of guys, but our appeal is very similar. If your audience likes them, they're probably like us. And now it took a couple of years, but on the basis of that, I did get a gig there. Never, I've never heard the Wayland Jennings play live. The only time I ever met them was in a hotel lobby in Norwich, England. We were both checking in at the same time. And we'd played this little place called the Fisher Theater, and they had played some that was outside of town, and they'd played some place right in Norwich. We're checking in like, 1.30 in the morning, checking in the hotel, and we hear these accents that are clearly, obviously, clearly Canadian accents. So we look around and, who are you guys? And, and then uh, there were actually a couple people in the band I, rec I recognized because I'd seen them play in other bands before too. So, so that was really neat. We had this big kind of, hey, hi, how are you? This big sort of meet and greet between us in the, in the, the travel lodge in Norwich, England. You know, two, two Canadian folk bands. That, that was a really cool... And then never saw them again, you know, like in the morning they were gone, I think before we were, cause they had a longer drive. So it's, it's amazing how migratory paths can cross even so far from the home nest that way. Yep. Um, and yeah. the Wayland Jenny Stoop, like they've played summer folk and, uh, and yeah. so have the ducks in fact, uh, who yeah. you mentioned earlier. Um, yeah, I'm, I know a funny story about the ducks. So they were playing Merle Fest. I don't know when this was, it's a while ago. And can you give Merle Fest context for listeners who might not be familiar? Well, all I know, oh, I never played there. Okay. It's a big singer-songwriter festival. Down in, in the States. Down in the States, in wherever Merle Haggard was from, I believe. I think that's who it's named after, but I don't even know that for sure. But it's it's one of these big events that kind of anybody who's anybody goes to. Like I said, we were never there, but the Ducks were there one year. And uh, so they're playing, they're playing this workshop. And this older guy comes up to them and afterwards and he's got a big instrument case and he comes up and he says, do you mind if I, he's kind of very, you know, very polite and, and, uh, deferential. He said, would you mind if I just sat in with you guys? Like, and it's part of the word, just, I'll just off to the side. I don't want to get in your way, but I wouldn't, I'd like to sit in with you if it's all right. And went, yeah, sure. So he gets out this big mandola and he's playing along with them. They thought it was pretty cool. It was John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin. <laughs> like how cool is that 
and which and I'm sure he didn't look like he did on the cover of uh, Zeppelin no. Two or whatever no. that that album was. No, that's <laughs> yeah. There's some, and I've I've never been to Merle Fest either, or or Kerrville, or and but like there are in that folk scene, and especially down in the states, there are festivals that are really beacons for yeah. people who love the art form and and creative folks where the quality of the songwriting in the campground is as good as the quality of songwriting that you're hearing on the yeah. satellite folk station and right and all that which kind of lets me segue into talking about radio a bit i know i've heard you talk before about working in a radio station being a great way to find out what's going on in town and yeah that that's something that's different since you're you're off the road yeah but you also georgian bay roots is all about promoting music that's made around here and folk and roots music but you also started a radio show, the the Hundred Mile Music Show. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I was yeah, I was asked to come on board because Ennio Masharin actually it was his idea, and I can't remember if he had the name already or if we came up with that after we talked. But I was sitting over in the bean cellar, wondering what I was gonna. Well, I wanted to get into radio. I had I had had that in mind for a year or two when I knew. And this is like 20, 2009, This would have been yeah, two thousand. We um, our our last show was we packed in. December 9th, I think, or 7th, I can't remember, 2009, whenever the last, the big finale day was at the Roxy. That was Tanglefoot's last gig. But we knew almost a year and a half ahead of that, that that was going to be it. I think it was, I think I told them, yeah, it was September, maybe even Labor Day of 2008 when I said that I was going to pack it in. Uh, so there was lots of lead time. And of course, I got to think about what I'm going to do for a living because retiring from folk music is sort of like retiring from anything, except there's no pension and no savings. So, you know, I had to do something. And I always liked radio. I've always been a radio listener. Even when I was a little kid, I always had a, I loved listening to the radio. And I always liked being on radio when I was on the road. You know, I did a million interviews and I just liked the, I, I've always had this romantic thing about radio, you know, the, the disembodied voice coming through the airways. I, I still feel like that. So I had been thinking about radio and I had been kind of sniffing around a little bit about what opportunities there might be here just informally. And then I ran into Anio in Bean Cellar and he said, I'm thinking of starting this radio show. Would you like to co-host it? And I'm like, yeah, you know. And the, and the premise of that show was exactly what you said. You know, it was, we ended up calling it the hundred mile music show and it was just music made within a hundred miles, give or take of, uh, of Owen sound. And we just put out the call, send us your stuff. And we got lots of great stuff. And, and that show ran just over a year and it was, it, it really helped me get my foot in the door here just as, you know, as a job. And uh, gave me some experience on the air, but it was also a chance to do something something different that commercial radio generally doesn't do, which is what you guys are doing now with Georgian Bay Roots. So yeah, shout out to the Georgian Bay Folk Society and Summer Folk for making this for show making possible. that happen. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you've got a real great roster of hosts there. I mean, you you did all the shows for the first while, and now Kaylee Jane Hawkins and um, and, and Kelly Babcock and and Tom Thwaites and Tom Thwaites. Yeah, and we we did have Dylan and Lauren on there for a, a little while, yeah. and they stepped back and. Mm-hmm. And well, I guess the way we do the radio show, it's kind of like being in a band too, where we like, we take our turns and yeah. we get to share the load. Um, was there anything surprising for you in that, that experience of the hundred mile music show? Yeah. How much work it took to put together one hour of live radio every week. It took, it took me about eight hours. 
including we did the show live. Uh, we'd come in here Thursday nights. I think it was, I think it was seven till eight. I think on Thursday evenings, as I remember, and we did it live. So we had for the first while until I started actually formally working here and then learned how to run the studio. We had an engineer in the you know in the CFOS control who had the CDs and the music all queued up and. Ennio and I were in the Dave Carr studio and, and with our scripts and our prep and all our notes and all that kind of stuff. And then you had to keep an eye on the timing all the time, you know? So, um, I was astonished at how much work it took to find the songs. Cause you have to, you have to listen to so much stuff and, and putting a show, putting a show together. Uh, the one similarity, I think the thing that helped is I'm, I'm used to putting sets together on stage. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you know anything about that, which I know you do, is it's not just a matter of I'm going to do this song and that song and that song and that song. It's 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 what order the songs go in. It's how the moods come off each other. It's building building the set with a certain architecture so it has some flow to it and it has some ebb and flow to it and some some rise and some fall and all that kind of stuff. Well, it's the same thing putting together a playlist for a radio show. You want the songs to kind of you want each song to kind of. Uh, kind of work properly off the one before. So you don't want too many of this kind of song or too many of that kind of pace or, you know, you want, you want variety and you want flow really. So, uh, but it, t- it took, it took an enormous amount of time. Yeah. And are there songs or submissions that, that you got in that year and a bit on the radio that still stick with you either from local musicians you didn't know were around or folks who, who tossed you a line from farther afield? Uh, yes. Um, although I'd have to say a lot of them I already knew about people like Larry Jensen. Um, there was a band. Yes, there was a band that we were very keen on and they, and you, I don't think you played in them, but you had something to do with them. Was it first rate people? Yes. First rate people who were kind of like a collective, weren't they? Yeah. In, in like the people late, came and went in the late 2000s. Yeah. And, uh, John Jasper Lawless and Liam Sanigan were kind of the, the yes. core driving forces there. Uh, John is back in the area. Uh, yeah. and, uh, I think most of the other people have, have gone away, but at times there were like a dozen people in those bands. Lindsay Beckett would play with them sometimes and yeah. a variety of folks. Yeah. And, um, now, you've mentioned Lindsay, but this is a bit of a tangent, but as an illustration of how little I knew about what was going on around here when I lived here, I barely was aware of the Becketts. And just think about what a powerful musical family they are. Well, I think they had to install a new mantle over their fireplace to fit all the awards they've got. I can imagine. But I ba- I was barely aware of them, other than I knew the name and I knew they played and I knew they played at some level. But that's all I could tell you up until... 2010. That's all I can tell you, you know, because like I said, that's, that's, I was, my head was so elsewhere other than, than what was going on here locally. So, uh, um, it was, I wouldn't, what the one, one thing that really struck me putting together the hundred mile music show. And I, and I do remember commenting on this is how much more was going on around here in 2009 musically than when I moved away in 1981. There was always music here. There were always bands and there were always people, but there are way more now, way more. What do you Uh, think the difference is? I don't know. I think just way more people see it as possible. Hmm. Um, um, Like there were, I can remember in high school, there'd be like each of the high schools would have 
like it was kind of a thing like oh there's hey there's there are these guys at West Hill they have a rock band really you know I mean there was a band that was kind of cool and OSCVI, yeah, which is where I went. Yeah, there's a band. There are these guys at OSCVI who have a band. Well, that's that wouldn't be remarkable at all now. You know, there's so many more bands, so many more songwriters, so many singers. I think back then it wasn't, I don't know, it just wasn't something that so many people did. And and I think in the intervening years, for whatever reason, it, I think way more people got the idea, well, we could do that. Why don't we do that? That looks fun. We can put on a show. It looks like fun. Yeah. There's, yeah, and and you, well, you're, you're kind of making me think. I think the first time that I saw Tanglefoot play was at a school assembly at Strathcona. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, oh, like, I don't know when that would have been, like 2003 or four. Whenever I was that age, when Strathcona was not apartments, when it existed right. as an institution. Yeah. And you folks came and, and you played for us that way. And I don't know that I... We played a couple. Yeah. Uh, Tanglefoot played there. And, and Al Parrish and I also played there just as a duo. Because we he and I did... Uh, uh, here's a road story for you. We played there as a duo. So we're doing doing our show this and this again this is just al and me we and we would do that on the side uh for a few years we did just he and i just did uh well school shows they're fun for the most part and of course you always do question and answer right and and we had we're pretty open guys and and we'd have a policy of we pretty much anything anybody asked we would answer and one of the things people like to ask a lot is, you know, how much did you pay for this? How much did you pay for that? And some people don't like those questions, but we just answered it. Like, what's the harm, right? So at Strathcona, and Strathcona uh, had, I went to Strathcona. And the, the one thing that it had in common from 1974 to whatever year this was when the story I'm telling about uh, telling, and I don't remember when this was, maybe late 90s is uh, there were some rough-around-the-edge kids there. So this girl puts up her hand. She's way at the back of the auditorium. And she goes, and I said, okay, girl at the back and in the leather jacket. She goes, so are you guys like stoners? <laughs> and and so I just, I, I kind of played dumb. I knew exactly what she's asking, what she was asking. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, are you like, stoners and meanwhile i can see the principal he's he's gradually moving towards her and i know there's going to be a homicide pretty soon because he was just furious at her you know asking this question and i said well i don't know that word what do you what are you asking me <laughs> and she says well you know like do you guys like experiment with drugs <laughs> and i said no do you <laughs> and the, the whole place just went up <laughs> And anyway, that was that was one of my uh, that was one of the few times on stage where you know somebody's trying to somebody's trying to submarine me, and I actually thought of the thing to say that you usually think of like the next day when you're driving away. <laughs> when you're yeah. driving away. Well, and I'm sure she was just uh, judging you based on your haircut and yeah. your profession. Yeah, probably, probably. Yeah, I remember Oscar. You know Oscar Lopez. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oscar, Oscar Lopez once told me that he never got stopped at the border for like drugs and stuff until he cut his hair and started wearing a business suit. He said, cause then he went from looking like what he was a guitar playing musician to looking like a Colombian drug Lord. <laughs> he's, 
Oscar Lopez, uh, also award-winning musician. He's played yes. summer folk and Lots uh, of times. had a duo called Compadres. With yeah, with James, James Keelan. Yeah, boy, great shows. I, uh, I watched one of those shows from the front row over in Midland once. It was amazing. Uh, I. James Keelan has told the story too about like those two guys used to prank each other on on stage. Did they? And uh, or at least they did it at least in in one at one festival. And uh, Oscar got James pretty well, and James said, "I'm going to get you back." <laughs> and the next night on the main stage at the festival, in the middle of one of his solos, uh, James pulled out a water gun and and just uh, squirted Oscar uh, right on stage in front of everybody. Uh, <laughs> Th- that story is available on the the Summerfolk YouTube channel with James telling that to great applause. I'm I'm curious for you, Steve. Like, how did it change going from like you had Tanglefoot, you had the break, mm. and then you started up RPR. Um, the I guess the other thing about retiring from folk music is it means at some point you're going to come out of retirement in folk music. And yeah, and and play something again. Um, we. One of the ways it started, and these are lost, <laughs> my memory's slightly hazy, lost back in the mists of 2012, which is when RPR started. Um, I think I think I got asked to play some benefit show or something. And I thought, well, why don't, I'll get Rob and Al to play too, because I don't really like playing on my own. I don't have much to contribute on my own. I'm not you know, the kind of guy who's going to dazzle you with his, you know, amazing finger style guitar playing in between verses. Right. And I thought, well, let's, you know, three of us will do something. And so we got, we got some songs together that were a little different. I, th- I can't remember. I think maybe we did uh, one or two, you know, Tanglefoot tunes, but we did some other stuff that, that we just thought would be interesting to play. And, um, and it was kind of fun, you know, we could, three of us obviously, play well together and we get on well and we're used to each other and we can sing harmonies together and all that stuff. And then at some point the thought came to us, you know, why don't we do this just, even if it's just now and again, but let's get a, let's get a drummer because, and let's make this a little heavier thing than, you know, like Tanglefoot was, I mean, some fairly aggressive music, but but it's the string band sound, right? It was all, you know, bass, guitars, you know, mandolin, fiddle, you know, banjo, all that kind of stuff. So the string band sound. And we thought, well, let's do something heavier, you know. I'll I'll play electric bass. You know, I'll still play acoustic guitar. Rob will play piano. But let's get, you know, some percussion in there and really, you know, do something, do something punchy. And I had played a thing up at, uh, I think at Stone Tree. And it was a Bob Dylan night. And it was a fundraiser for something, as I recall. And everybody played two Bob Dylan songs, and there was a house band. And one of the songs I played was actually kind of a Robert Plant version of a Bob Dylan song called One More Cup of Coffee, which I really liked. And I went to, and there's no rehearsal. You just kind of show up and show them the key, and away you go. And But I went, I, I met Beaker, who who I'd met before, but I didn't know him very well. And I met him backstage and I said, and I played him a little bit of my rhythm guitar part. And I said, so this is the kind of groove I want to play for this song. And he says, oh yeah, yeah, that's good. And he and he did it really well. Like he, he just he just laid down this really nice groove for us to play against. And when Rob and Al and I started thinking about, well, if we want to play some gigs, you know, let's ask him. Let's see if he wants to play. And so we we ended up playing something that was, I would have to say fairly disastrous down at the old curling club. Um, but it told us enough that 
what, what it told us is that we, the four of us actually had some chemistry. So from there, we just started playing together whenever we had the chance and we've played a bunch. We've gone to England a couple of times and, and, uh, and, and lost tons of money, but managed to do some really fun shows and, uh, and have played through the States a bunch of times. And, and actually we, we had a whole pile of American shows that got COVIDed back in the, in, in 2020. And I don't even know if those concert series exist anymore right now, but, um, uh, so when we get the chance, we play. And when we do, it's really fun. We played a couple times in November. We played, uh, well, we played here. We played at Hartwood in November. And we played in uh, in Toronto, a concert series in Toronto, I think, consecutive weekends. And uh, so this summer we're playing, we have a show in Lion's Head actually in June. And we have uh, Point of Barrel in July. And we have Summer Folk in August. And you described there being like a real kind of thing that Tanglefoot was doing with historical songs. Is there an RPR thing or, or is it more open to it's whatever not, people bring to the table? Yeah. Um, yes. It, it, it's there, there's a bigger envelope in that there isn't a, the, there isn't a, a kind of thematic thing as there was with Tanglefoot because part of the thing, like there were songs that sometimes people would bring to the table with Tanglefoot and, and I, like I can remember sometimes thinking, I mean, that's a great song, but it's not a Tanglefoot song, you know, um, because it's out, it's, it's kind of outside certain thematic parameters. There were sometimes some pretty spirited discussions about that back yeah, in the day. Even if Rob writes a great song about an alien invasion, it's probably not going to fit into a Tanglefoot Well, that kind album. of thing. Yeah. 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 As a matter of fact, I can remember, and I don't want to name names, but I can remember a very heated, there was a song that I really didn't think should go on an album. It wasn't with Rob. Um, and it got very hot. And because I, I, di I didn't dislike the song, but I thought it has nothing whatsoever to do, in my mind, it was just me. It has nothing whatsoever to do with Tanglefoot. And, and this argument went on for days. And eventually I thought, you know what? He wants this song on this record more than I don't. So I just stopped. <laughs> I never thought it was a good idea. But, and in hindsight now, like, who cares? It's on the record. People like it. Or they don't. I think I've never heard anybody say they don't like it. You know, I mean, I didn't dislike it. I just didn't think it fit. Um, so ultimately, like I said, it doesn't matter. But, but no. I'm to get back to your original question, which is, uh, which has to do with no. There isn't a there isn't a thematic thing that goes with 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 RPR. No. Um, I would say probably there would be some consideration. Um. I can't remember anybody bringing a song off the top of my head, bringing a song to the table that was kind of rejected on, well, it doesn't really fit in. I mean, some songs got brought in and we did some workshopping on them and just kind of laid them aside because they just kind of weren't happening. Mm. Um, so no, there's not so much a thematic thing. It just has to be something. It just has to be something we like playing really. They're all fun to play. All the songs are fun to play. And are you two or three albums deep with RPR now? I know Transatlantic and Longview. Transatlantic and Longview, yeah. Yeah, yeah Transatlantic in 2013, which was recorded on both sides of the Atlantic, which is why it's called that. And then uh, and then uh, 2018 uh, was uh, Longview, yeah. Yep. Well, we look forward to having you back to Summerfolk. And, uh, Can't wait. I know we'd see you around there one way or another, but it's it's nice to know that we're going to get to see you on stage. And I really appreciate you taking the time to for this interview because we've given you shout outs on on the show before because you're the person who does all the back end stuff to make the show that we send you 
make it out on the the 560 airwaves. So thanks for all that you've done to support us as a as a show and certainly trailblazing with the 100 Mile Music Show. But um, also thanks for taking the time. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, it has been fun. It's You've got me thinking about memories and things and conversations and anecdotes that I haven't haven't had reason to think about for a long time so thank you well maybe the 560 listeners will get some of those anecdotes then when you're recording your next bit yeah now and again they do yes (laughs) well thanks steve is there a song that we should play that you think would would be most appropriate to wrap up uh our our conversation together yeah play um from the last from the last uh tanglefoot record which was called dance like flames 2006 um yeah play my song on there it's called for the day and it's just kind of a um it's kind of a song of you know gratitude and also a little bit of humility and uh given some of given the culture of complaining in which we live it's something that i don't know i it's a way of thinking that i try and come back to every now and again. So maybe that one for the day. All right. We'll hit play right now. Thanks again, Steve. If I listen, I can hear through the joy and through the tears, all the children of this earth, both blessed and cursed. So will I this perfect day? Should I spare a thought to pray? Ask for only what's sufficient for the day. A little sun, a little rain, a little money now and then, and the knowledge of enough to eat tomorrow. Keep the locusts from our fields, take your portion of the yield. For the folk less blessed by fortune than are we. Decent health to work my life, wine and candles with my wife, sufficient store laid in to get us to next harvest. Little bounty from above. And a husband I can love A little wisdom in such portion as I earn Time to stare into the fire And indulge in small desires And a moment now and then that I can savor A little time to eat and drink Time to pause and time to think Just enough to curb despair and keep me whole If the recruiter comes around He will find me underground The empires of ambitious men do not concern me Calm the hearts at angry beat Still the earth beneath my feet Keep me from suspicion and from jealousy. Not for me the pride of place or entitlement to grace. Why should I be spared my share of dread and sorrow? Keep our children from the grave. 
From the plague may we be saved. Make our suffering no more than we can bear. If I listen, I can hear through the joy and through the tears all the children of this earth, both blessed and cursed. So will I this perfect day, should I spare a thought to pray. Ask for only what's sufficient for the day.